Thank you so much for tuning in to the Phenomena NDE Near Death Experiences. Today with me, I have a young lady. Her name is Louis, Louisa Peck, and she's had a near death experience in 1982, and she's going to tell us all about it. Welcome to my show. Thanks, Kathy. I'm glad to be here. You're welcome. And you're, it was 1982, and I. Yes, yeah, so I'm not such a young lady. <laughs> I hear these near-death experiences, they're like a blueprint. Once you have yeah. them, you can never forget. It's like in your bloodstream and all that other stuff. It's Because I've had people, I had someone who came on my show, it was in 1970s, and he talked about his experience. It was more due to a car accident, but he remembered it like a blueprint. He goes, Kathy, you just don't forget. So, yeah. and I'm sure yeah, he's... Yours is the same way, you know, 1982, and uh, I'm sure a lot of things have, you know, like an awakening, you know what I mean? Like a <laughs> Not so much in my case. My sense is that whenever spirit is with us, the memories record in a different way. So there's our brain, and our brain makes its own recordings, but when you are spiritually connected to source, Mm -hmm. then it gets encoded in a different way that doesn't fade. So if I'm just going about my daily life and worried about this and that, driving around or whatever, mm -hmm. and I think of my near-death experience, it's kind of like, yeah, I know that thing is there. But when I begin to tell it, I've often likened it to a, um, an old-fashioned vinyl LP. Mm -hmm. Like once I put the needle in the groove, it will tell itself. So I don't have to worry now, like, do I have it all set in my mind? It's going to tell itself once I start. And then I have an experience too, if I really let myself go there and I, I get to feel the feelings again. And this is actually true with my whole story. So uh -huh. I'll just tell your viewers, you know, you were saying was an enlightening experience. My case is a little different. That's okay. So, I was raised atheist and I very much identified with atheism. So when I had this near-death experience in 1982, I was 22. And when I came out of it, I had a kind of a crossroads of, do I believe this was God or do I want to say it was a drug trip? And because I wanted to keep drinking because I wanted to keep partying, because I thought if I acknowledged God, it would mean I'd have to become religious and go to church all the time. I just decided to shut it out. And so what ended up happening is since my near-death experience, I've had 18 paranormal experiences. It took the first nine for me to finally have what you're talking about, the awakening, the full change, because up until then, even though extraordinary things happened, I was still trying to cling to a materialist explanation. Even when I couldn't really find one, I was, my allegiance was with material science. So I did not want, I couldn't imagine acknowledging anything other than material science. I couldn't imagine that was something that that silly woo-woo people did. And it, I was not going to be a silly woo-woo. Uh -huh. And now I am 100% because I understand that material science is a very limited, boring, um, just, just a mechanical universe. It's just a tiny sliver of what reality is about. And I I understand that. So I will go back and tell my near-death experience. Yeah, the one um, happened in 1982. Mm -hmm, yeah, I'll go back now and start telling it. So okay. I was uh, just, I had just graduated from Vassar College with lots of awards, but I didn't know how to, um, I didn't have any more hoops to jump through. I loved college because people would say, you know, take this test or write this paper. And I was lost uh, right afterwards. So I moved to New York and what I wanted was to just live a studio 54 kind of, you know, blondie 
go, go, Cindy Lauper life uh -huh. uh, in New York. And um, so I had a lot of boyfriend drama going on with various boyfriends. And I went out with um, my ex-boyfriend's best friend, and he was a Coke dealer. So we did a bunch of Coke, and then we hopped in a cab and did more Coke and got to um, a place called the Peppermint Lounge in Manhattan's um, village. Uh -huh. And um, I, uh, we ran out. I was, I was dancing. I was feeling really, really, really good. And I didn't want to come down. So we pooled together the money we had. We asked around and we bought a bag of powder from this guy in the club and he told us it was cocaine and we rubbed it on our gums and it made them numb and so we bought it and then he disappeared and and we started snorting it and it didn't do anything for us uh -huh. and my friend my date who was a coke dealer he said this is crap and he threw down his straw he was like he wasn't going to snort it it's almost like a wine connoisseur, but with cocaine. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, it might be crap, but if I do the whole pile at once, maybe I'll get high. So I did the whole pile at once. And what I learned later when I got clean and sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I made a lot of friends who were Coke dealers in the 80s, was that they used to mix it with lidocaine. <gasps> so lidocaine is an anesthetic. And normally it's used topically and sometimes it's used, I, I mean, because I've heard of lately of someone who, who died from an overdose of lidocaine, a little girl they gave too much to, that was covered on the uh, Tyler Henry show. Uh -huh. But in any case, in my case, I ingested enough to kill me, only I didn't know it. So I was very used to like just thinking, let's, let's see what happens. I'd never done acid, but I just had a implicit trust in uh drugs and alcohol so i started getting tunnel vision i assumed not that i was dying not that my brain was not getting enough oxygen but that this was part of the drug uh -huh. and i went to the bathroom and while i was waiting in line um the amount that i could see was getting smaller and smaller like i was looking through toilet paper tube rolls or paper towel rolls like i was only seeing a very small binocular space in front of me and then that began to get dark too and i couldn't read any of the graffiti so i came out and i was in a little bit of a panic then because i was just like what is happening and is it going to get completely dark and why is there no air in this nightclub um there was to me no air in the nightclub because the lidocaine was shutting down my heart so it was beating you know like 30 beats a minute 20 beats a minute going down so even if i breathed a lot on purpose nothing got to my brain uh -huh. so um the date said let's let's get you a glass of water he took me to the bar i remember the bartender getting me a glass of water and handing it to me and i did not want it i was still saying there's no air in here there's no air and i was angry that that nobody else was acknowledging that there was no air in here. Uh -huh. But just to kind of please him, I, I took a sip from the glass. And at that point, I felt something strike me under my chin. So I thought very quickly many things just before I left my body. So the first thing I thought was that somehow I had collapsed and hit my chin on the bar because it felt like a violent strike. Uh, -huh. uh it it felt violent because i was going into a grand mal seizure oh, but wow. i did not know anything about that grand mal seizure what i felt was as if that had been a popeye punch under my chin or as if i'd been fired from a cannon i just shot up straight up into the air and i had it felt absolutely wonderful and my feeling was oh i'm leaving behind all that nonsense down there thank goodness thank goodness i'm finally like 
stopping all that silliness that I was so tangled up in down there. And I had what's called, um, if I can pronounce it right, an amnesiatic NDE, which is the same kind that Eben Alexander had. And it just means that the minute you leave your body, you forget all about that body's life in the world. Uh-huh. And I forgot all about being Louisa. It was just a bunch of silliness. So I was still me in that I had the same identity. And I would, I would even say I had the same energy. I had the same vibration, whatever you want to call it. My knowingness had the same flavor, but it wasn't attached to that story anymore. So I went shooting up into a beautiful blue sky and all the sense of, you know, I can't breathe. All of that got left behind. And in fact, I had this sense that I was going to do a backbend. So sort of a pride in my physical abilities was still with me because the 22-year-old Louisa was a ballet dancer. So my spirit even, I felt like I'm going to do a backbend and then a dive because the ocean was under me. Uh So I did this gorgeous which I could never really do in real life <laughs> but anyway in I did a backbend and I turned around and then I was diving and it just went perfectly and I had a sense of like yeah I was happy about it but I just felt like of course this worked and then I saw the ocean far below me I had a brief thought that if you're very high and you hit water very fast it's like concrete but I didn't have fear I had a sense of let's let's just see what happens so I dove it again much more skill than I have in real life I just was a perfect vertical dive and I went way down into the ocean Uh and then I saw the beautiful bubbles rising around me the surface was quite high up and for a moment I had another thought like i you know, I, I don't know if I can make it up that far. And then I'm at the surface, just, just like that. And again, I have a sense like, of course, of course it worked. And then I saw the, uh, the shore. It was pretty distant. I would say maybe about, I don't know, 300 feet from me. Uh And, um, but then the next thing I know, I'm wading up onto the shore. I don't have any memory of swimming I just wanted to be there and then I was waiting out and I I always joke that I wish it had been a beautiful tropical beach with sand and palm trees and stuff but no I'm from the Pacific Northwest and so I saw a Pacific Northwest beach with rocks and uh-huh. uh, a bank and trees and so on and, and and so down the beach so if I'm facing the shore it was to my left I saw a big house up on a mesa, like the ocean had eroded away everything but this one kind of sea stack. And on top of it was this old house. And I knew that had to do with me and I wanted to be there. So next thing I know, I'm not at the house, I'm at the base of the mesa, which turns out to be a big pile of rocks but they are covered with something repulsive and this was a surprise to me they were covered with some kind of like i thought it was rotten seaweed at the time but it was putrid and gross and so again i had that same sense you know i can do a back bend i can do a dive and i thought i can climb this so i did climb it Uh um but when i got to the door sill I had lost my body. So it's, if at the end, I'll come back and talk about some of what I think was going on with each of these transitions, but each one is a new layer Uh of my experience on the other side. So when I'm at the door sill, I can see with this like super, super clear vision, the door sill itself, which is very worn, the whole house is very worn. It's like the paint has been weather worn. And then the floor has been worn by so many feet crossing it that the grooves are deep and the, the grain of the wood is kind of showing like some kind of like felt, you can see it. And I, I was kind of fascinated as I moved across it, but I also had the realization that the many feet that had worn it so um what foot beaten i don't know what to call it what were my ancestors 
uh-huh. treading through there. My ancestors had all gone through this same doorway and into this same house. And I had a, a kind of a knowing that it was a way station, but I didn't really think of that it that way. I just thought we all go through this house. And um and then I began to sense my ancestors seeing me, mm-hmm. joyfully seeing that I was on my way to join them. I, in, as a 22-year-old, did not know anything about my ancestors. I did not care anything about my ancestors. You know, people who would say, this is my great-grandfather, I'd be like, yeah, whatever. You know, I just, I didn't care. I hadn't been uh, that close to my grandmother. Mm-hmm. But her husband, who I never met because he died before I was born, he's the one I sensed most excited for me. All I had ever seen of him was a photograph in my dad's closet because my mom wouldn't let him keep the photographs out in the house. So there was a picture of him in my dad's closet, but I could sense him being excited to meet me and um, and many others, too. So. I knew that there was supposed to be a chair in this central room and it was supposed to look out through the big picture window that was there facing the ocean. And I knew that all my ancestors loved to sit in that chair and just marvel at the beauty of the ocean. But Mm -hmm. here I was like Alice in Wonderland, just only an inch tall, looking up at the window and I just thought, I wish I could see. And as soon as I had that thought, that was all I needed. It was like something began to pull me. It's like a magnetic pull. And it feels like it's pulling from my heart, even though I don't have a body anymore. The sense of where my heart would be is what's getting pulled across the floor. And right away I had this sense of, whoa, because I'm going across the floor and I'm not willing it. And then I go up and then I go over the windowsill and out. I'm thinking, what's happening? But I'm it's with ecstatic kind of wonder that this wow. is happening. And then the next thing I know, I am swooping down and across the water and just flying across the reflection of the sunset. And The colors around me in the sunset are glorious and the color of the gold, that the path of gold that's coming from the sun is glorious and it's dappling on the waves. And I'm feeling this very fast motion of just swooshing through the air, swooshing ahead. I feel it like this, just the, the, the thrill of the, of the motion. And, um, then I had this little thought, like, wait a minute people can't fly i must be dreaming really and then i thought is is this real (laughs) and then a voice answered me this this is going to turn out to be my guardian angel but this is the first time that he communicated to me directly he said more real than anything you've known and i did not expect to be answered so i didn't know anybody was with me i didn't understand what was going on but i did have this sense of you're right. You're right. Plus, I I had a sense of the power of that voice. I mean, it kind of, I was a little bit like, whoa, what's that? Because it was very powerful. It's not a sound. It's not a sound. It's not words. It's just like it vibrates in your consciousness, this knowing, you know, more real than anything you've known before. And so, After that, I noticed that the sun was getting bigger and bigger, and it occurred to me that I was going to hit it. And I, again, had a thought of, well, I wonder if I'll just be burned up. I didn't really feel heat. It was more just the the size of it and the brilliance, and it was still that sunset color, kind of more Mm orange-like. And then I did hit it, but it was just a filament, and I passed through inside, and then I was in the center of the sun. And there was the light. And the light is um, what we cannot describe. It was, to me, just the brilliant light from all sides, but it was love. The light was love. And it was not on my exterior. It was all through me. And it was it was the answer to everything I'd ever, ever wanted. It was... 
um, a total fulfillment, a total bliss. And I was just saturated with it. And uh, it was just glorious to be saturated with this. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that I was being held by a figure. And if I were to describe the figure, it was like a, I couldn't see the figure, but I had a sense that it was holding me like a baby and like that it was like not standing, but like sitting cross-legged, kind of like a Buddha or something, but holding me in its arms and just pouring love into me like I was a little baby. And it was just saying, you are so loved, you are so, and you are so so lovable and you are just you're the ultimate cute lovable wonderful little thing mm-hmm. <laughs> and um i i was absorbing that and i loved the, the parent back again um and i just wanted to stay like that forever i just wanted to stay there i mean there's it's not possible to long for anything else when you are 100 fulfilled mm-hmm. and then I don't know how long it was, but the parents said, um, you can't stay, you're not finished. And this idea came to me very quickly, and then boom, light was gone, and it was black. And I was in total darkness. Parent was not there. No more sun, no more being held, no more anything, just blackness. Mm -hmm. And a slight sense of dropping. So before I even felt the the sense of dropping as soon as I received the information that I couldn't stay I I went into a rage and I I went like it was like a toddler like a toddler rage and if you think of a toddler when they're just kicking and screaming on the ground tantrum somehow yes feel like they're gonna get their way if they just kick and scream hard enough Uh that was me and so I was like no no and um I, I had a thought, I'll show the parents. They can't make me go back. But I got a very short, I call it an afterglow or an afterthought of like, case is closed, sweetheart. It's a done deal. Still loving, but not going to change this ruling. Wow. And then I felt the, the drop, like I was falling. And I had a brief moment of being alone and falling in the dark. Just a brief one of being very scared. But then I lost the sensation of dropping and I began to see these chalk figures drawn on the quote unquote blackboard of the blackness. They were stick figures with little smiles and they were animated. So they were on a playground. They were going on swings. They were going on teeter totters. They were um, saying these little rhymes to each other in these kind of cute little voices. And it was all like, you know, how many flippers in a flim flam? Uh How many kangas in a, you know, they were just like, I don't, I don't remember except that I remember they were sort of little nonsense nursery rhyme type things. And I thought, well, this is not nearly, this is not even 2% as good as the light, but Uh it's a gift to me from the parent to keep me entertained until I can go back. Uh-huh. When and you, I knew I was going to go back. When you, had, when, that, you, when you were being dropped, when did you go back into the body? When did you go back into your body? Well, I believe that the rage, the moment of rage, was when I was crossing the energetic boundary of my body. I believe that each of us, in order to maintain free will, God has given us a little membrane around us that is an energetic membrane that keeps us from seeing, feeling, hearing spiritual realities. Someone like Tyler Henry, it's thin. In my case, it's for all of us, I believe it's it's made of fear and anger. And so that rage and that temper tantrum was my spirit passing through that I would call it God-phobic membrane, just like every cell in our body has a hydrophobic membrane so that it can be distinct in the water of our bodies. So I, as a spirit, have a God-phobic membrane so that I can be distinct as an independent self in the world. Mm-hmm. So I think that's when I went back in, and I honestly think that the I was beginning to sense all the people around me because there was a big crowd around me. The 
bartender had been doing CPR on me this whole time. He, he had his certification in that and he did it the old fashioned way. We did not have whatever there is now in terms of, you know, germ protocol. He was doing mouth to mouth. Uh-huh. And what happened was one of the stick figures got closer to me and started to fill in solid instead of being just the chalk circle. And then instead of saying nursery rhymes, he was saying, what is your name? How many fingers? And that's when I realized that it was a person in front of me. And I saw my vision came back to me and I saw him right in front of me. And I understood that he thought fool that he was fool that he was. He thought he was separate from me. He thought he was a he and I was a me. And he thought that the way we would communicate is by burping this kind of code back and forth. So he was, he was burping a code at me and he wanted me to reciprocate. And I just, I knew I was back in what I call the meat puppet. And I felt this huge disappointment, this huge just despair that, oh my God, you've got to be kidding. I'm back here. And I just didn't, didn't want to do it. I didn't want to talk to him. I didn't want to, I just didn't want to be not in the light anymore. Uh-huh. And so then I'm, I'm kind of a people pleaser because I was brought up, you know, super codependent and everything. So I can sense he's really urgent and he, he really wants me to say my name or how many fingers. So I finally thought of where my mouth was. It felt like it was down in this kind of garage. Like if you're in an apartment and you know that there's a garage right under you, or you're in a house that has a garage in the basement floor, that's Mm -hmm. where I felt like my tongue was, was down there. And I was like, but I can control it from here, Mm -hmm. from here being my brain. And so I did. And I, I sent out Louisa and I could see he was happy with that and then I could send out you know two fingers and and then I found I was on the floor of the nightclub and I thought that they had thrown water over me to revive me because I was in a pool of water again kind of like Alice in Wonderland Uh but it was actually just a huge profusion of sweat that I had put out because wow. the question remains, how did the lidocaine that was enough to kill me, that was enough to stop my heart. How did God get that out of me? So I don't know that it was in the sweat. I know that a lot of people, when they, when their heart starts, stops and then restarts, there's a huge profusion of sweat. I've actually seen it. Um, but uh, God could have just said lidocaine's gone. It's just gone. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, a lot of people who come back from NDEs, there is no explanation for how, how can somebody who has ingested enough lidocaine for it to kill them suddenly be okay again. So that's when I was conscious. Mm-hmm. But if it's okay with people, I'd like to go back and just kind of talk about what I think was going on. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, is that if you think about it, I go through almost all the elements um, it, from, I mean, it's called elementalism, but there's this sense of, you know, reality being made up of for air. First, I was flying through the air, right? Right. Water. Uh-huh. I was in the ocean. Earth. I was up on the land. Wood. I was seeing the grain of the house so clearly, and then finally fire, I went into the sun. And so um, there's also the fact that the sun was my representation of God. So I I hear people tell near-death experiences sometimes as if they think that like the the, the marble library is really there, or you know what I mean? Or the river is really there. The, these are all the time uh-huh. what we're seeing is a mental hologram meant to represent reality around us right what we really just get is photons 
bouncing off our retina and waves of pressure passing through the air and even little molecules dispersed in the air. And these give us our sense of sight and hearing and smell. And, and we put it, and then there's the nerves in our bodies that, you know, let us know where our body is in space. So our mind is always like putting all this, synthesizing all this information to generate a, I like to call it a hologram of reality. It's a tenth of a second behind reality because all of our brain processes take a tenth of a second. So at any time, whatever you see here, you're a tenth of a second behind when it happened. When we're outside our bodies, the information is just coming in a different form. It's energetic information. But again, we make a kind of holograph of it. So what it's a representation to me of passing through these different layers of the other side and of reaching so close to source. And the reason I was my source was the sun was that my father had always taught me that the sun, awesome. I mean, he correctly taught me that the sun is the source of all energy on earth, except for the tides and geothermal energy, hmm. everything else, you know, everything we burn, everything we eat, every calorie we ingest, all of it comes from the sun. So my energy now, as I'm talking to you and your energy now, as you're listening to me, this comes from the sun, mm. from the food that we eat, that's been photosynthesized. Mm -hmm. So having that understanding, I saw God as the sun. If I had not been raised as an atheist, if I had been raised as a Hindu, I would have seen a Hindu God. If I'd been raised as a Christian, I would have seen Jesus. It was my representation for source mm -hmm. but it's actually my angel it's the one that was holding me and i i will get to that did to you that see um did you see your angel i'm getting some no, people asking questions did you see your angel did you see I, any family I members never, besides no no I told you everything I saw. I have not ever seen my angel, though he has, I mean, I have one photograph of him as an orb that uh, was taken by several cameras in, in 2013, two cameras, two different angles, right after he had spoken to me, uh, a bunch of people took pictures because it was, I can tell that story. Mm -hmm. But in that picture, he shows up as an orb. Mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't see him as a person as a physiognomy um and years ago two years ago mm -hmm. i sat down and said i want to know your name i want to know your name and you know he gave me first of all he sort of it was he gave me eye rolling energy he gave me eye rolling energy because he was saying i have had so many names none of them are in an alphabet that is familiar to you so i can't tell you I'm not going to pick one for you. And I'm like, please just pick one, just pick one. And, you know, something close to what I can understand. And so he showed me a bunch of letters. And eventually I arrived at Ignacio, which is an Etruscan name that means born of fire. And so he was in the sun. And I guess that's why he picked that one for me. So now I call him Ignacio and he I wanted him to be a girl I wanted him after after my near-death experience I would when I thought back on it I would think it was a parent maybe it was a female because at for a certain point of my life period of my life I was lesbian and very feminist and just didn't like men so I didn't want to have a a male angel <laughs> but you know what Ignacio has really strong male energy and I can't change that. Yeah. Um, so, do you ever feel your angel around you even when you're like driving or walking down the street or you of know, course. your mind's of course, on something I, else, but yet you can feel the presence of somebody else? Of course, of course. And he has saved my life many times. Oh, give us um, experience. Give us one of them. Give one of your experiences. Well, one was in uh, 2013 when I was, I was extremely upset because um, 
my book, my addiction memoir had come out. It's, it's about addiction. It's about alcoholism, although it has my near death experiences woven in there. Uh There I'm working on a book that's just about my near death experience and weird things, but this was about my recovery from alcoholism and my family was outraged that I said my father had been an alcoholic, um, outraged about the, my claims that our family was dysfunctional, just sending me a ton of hate emails and putting out an amazing number of one star reviews on Amazon of the ebook. So I was very upset and I had gone to an Al-Anon meeting to try to get some help with where do I make a boundary between them and me, which Mm -hmm. I hadn't been able to do until I got diagnosed with cancer also at that time. But so I've got cancer, I've got the family and I'm just leaving this Al-Anon meeting and it starts to downpour. And um, I put my foot on the brakes one time and I felt that they were just a tiny bit soft. But here comes Ignacio and he says, you have no brakes, pull over right now. And I'm like, hey, dude, it's raining out. I am not pulling over. I can't take this on top of everything. And he's like, you have no brakes. And so I say, you know what? I'm on this top of this very steep hill. When I get to Dravis Avenue and if the brakes don't work, I'll use my emergency brake. It's going to be fine. And there he comes again. He goes, he's like, you have no brakes, pull over now. I'm like, no. So then I look and I'm expecting a sign that's going to tell me arterial turns right. Uh And the arterial turns right and goes down a steep hill into another hill that turns left and goes down to a major intersection, huge intersection with a bridge and traffic in all directions. And it's steep. This is Seattle. We have steep hills. Yeah, they do. And so... I'm looking for that sign, but it's not supposed to come along for another block, but there it is. And it's off to the left, which it usually isn't, but there it is. It says arterial turns and it's got a a, a right hand arrow like it really does. And so I'm like, wow, I guess I'm there already. Am I there? And and he goes, yes. And so, (laughs) so I turn right and I'm on this flat little side street where I didn't intend to go. Uh And it's, flat and I have no brakes. I have nothing. When I put my foot on the pedal, it goes all the way through. So what I have to do, and I'm going, okay, I get, you know, okay, this is before I knew his name. I, you were right. You were right. And I pull over to the side and coast to a stop. Uh-huh. And I'm just very grateful. So I ended up, uh, you know, I had to take the bus home and get the car towed and yada, yada. Next time I drove through there, I'm like, what was that sign I saw? Uh-huh. And you know what it was? What? It was a the back of a no parking sign for people coming the other way. Oh, Somehow man. on the back of that sign, he was able to make me think I saw the arterial turns sign uh-huh. to save me. And, uh, I don't know why he goes out of his way like that, but he's done it many times. Uh Wow. And many of them have to do with when I am in the car. So that's, I seem to have a propensity to have bad things happen in the car, (laughs) but he doesn't let me. Other times, because I've had a near-death experience, some of the weird things that happened, just for example, I was... I directed the writing center at the University of Washington and a young woman came in and this was back in um, 2005 before we had the online sign up. Yeah. No, okay. maybe 2006. Anyway, she, she wants to sign up for a session with a tutor. And so I have a clipboard, an actual like paper and pen clipboard. And I say um, name and she says Wendy. And I just, I'm trying to make a W. She's watching, but my hand just won't make the W. And I think I can't do this, but I think, well, I know how to make an L because my name starts with L. So I just wrote Lee and she looked at me and she's like, why did you write that? And I said, I don't know. I'm sorry. And she said, that's my last name. I was just waiting to say it. And so 
I was embarrassed. I actually crossed out Lee and wrote Wendy and said, I'm, I'm so sorry about that. And then she's like adamant. She's like, how do you know my name? I've never been in this place in my life. She's looking around. She's outraged. That I've been spying on her or something. And I said, I said, I'm sorry. I just must have picked it up somehow. And she looked at me like, you're freaking nuts, lady. You've been spying on me and I know it. Anyway, she laughed. And when she actually came in from her appointment, I remember her looking across the room at me like I was some kind of witch. Like she just did not like me. So that happened and 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 many others. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't, as I say, I, I pushed them all aside until 2009. And then I had an experience with a dream that became real. And then I understood that God was, that's when I, I would say before that, I had my atheist persona and I had the part of me that knew that these weird things happened to me and I hadn't been able to integrate them. Uh -huh. um, and so if you think about that, that's, um, well, actually it was, 2003 through four, I said the wrong date before 2003 through four is when it was the ninth weird thing. I'm not sure what I said, but it was the ninth weird thing. 2003 to 2004 is when I finally accepted that God is real. Oh, sometimes these take time, but uh, yes. I'm, I'm grateful for you know, your experiences. Tell me when we were talking one-on-one, -on -one, tell me a little bit about your sister. Tell us about your sister and what happened to her and, you know, and how so, you helped um, her. I was very close with my sister when we were in our teens and 20s. I've just been rereading all the letters that we sent back and forth. And we'd had a difficult relationship because my mother kind of whichever kid was born more recently was the one she liked the best mm -hmm. and so she kind of my older sister was kind of like you know your old news this new daughter is the one I'm crazy about and so there was a lot of resentment between us as children but we kind of overcame it when we were teens mm -hmm. but then when she uh went through some difficulties in her life and ended up becoming Catholic at the same time that I was going through difficulties in my life and found my strengths by becoming a lesbian. Uh -huh. And so she said to me one day, you realize that no relationship you can ever have will be as meaningful as my husband's and mine. And I was, I remember I was sitting on the floor and I remember I was kind of picking at the nap of the carpet and I just remember this rage. And so I kind of like locked her out after that. Then she got diagnosed with cancer mm -hmm. and I was not there for her. And she seemed to beat it the first time, but she still had a lump in her armpit come back and she only phoned in and she got a resident who told her to ignore it, that it, it was just a swollen lymph gland. I don't know, but it was the cancer it was in a lymph gland. And by the time she found that out, it had metastasized all over her bones, all everywhere. And um, so she changed. She, like, I remember this conversation when she said, I would like to be closer. We were actually in person sitting on my parents' bed and she was changing her little one's diaper because she had children two and a half, five and seven. And I remember I when she would be kind, I just kind of wasn't, a, all I could remember was the meanness from when we were little and the meanness of that statement. And she also said a lot of sarcastic. She was super, super smart. And she was teaching at Harvard University, delivering papers at Oxford on musicology. She was very famous uh, in her field. And, and I, I just couldn't open my heart. I kept my fence up. And uh, then she got the cancer in her liver. Um, 
and we finally were told by the doctor she was on the east coast they were like if you want to see her you need to fly out here she's got two weeks to live wow. so we flew out okay and uh she was so happy to see us you know she she looked terrible she had her the cancer had gone into her hip and the the hip joint had disintegrated and fallen apart and they had done for some reason a hip replacement and that's she that was like what was her death knell but in any case they told us two weeks so my brother and i were sitting in her room overnight just mm -hmm. to be there and she would come conscious and she would say my kids my kids i've got my kids and she would she would cry physically to get out of the bed and she had all these tubes attached to her and everything and and we would say they'll be here in the morning they'll be here in the morning and and like try to get her back into the bed and and calm her down and that had happened like maybe three times so we were there trying to sleep and i began it began with a sense when my eyes were closed that the light was coming mm -hmm. and the light was coming in through the bottom of the hospital window. It was traveling along the floor of the hospital room, and then it was pooling in a swirl like a galaxy over my sister. I could see this when my eyes were closed, but I'm still an atheist. This is only 1997. I've only been sober for two years, and I haven't really gotten a higher power internalized yet so you got to keep that i am an angry lesbian atheist <laughs> <laughs> and yet i see this when i close my eyes then here comes the voice of ignacio though i didn't know his name then uh -huh. and he's like you need to help her she's afraid you need to help her cross you need to tell her about the light and all i really heard at that point was you need to tell her about the light. Like I know now that he was trying to communicate all that, but I, he was telling me, you gotta tell her about the light. And I had a sense that she was blocked. And then I thought of two things. One, she'd had a conversation with me where she told me when I appear to be unconscious, it's because of the morphine, I can still hear everything. And number wow. two, she had told my younger sister in a private moment, to die of cancer at 41 is the biggest diss God can give you. And so I knew in my heart that she was hurt with this sense that God did not love her. But if God loved her, why was she dying and being torn away from her kids at 41? So I knew that, but I'm still fighting against the voice and i'm just saying she's gonna live two weeks the kids are coming in the morning this is not necessary but he built and he built and he's like tell her tell her just like he was with the turn right tell her mm -hmm. and so finally i just said okay okay i'll i'll do it so i went and i knelt down by her ear mm -hmm. and i told her what a beautiful life she had lived how beautiful things she had done with her music and her musicology and what a wonderful mother she had been to her children and then I said but your body doesn't work and then because she was Catholic I said Jesus will come for you Jesus will be with you he'll enfold you in his arms and it love will be all around you like I didn't describe it as the light I described it as I was told to by Ignacio I described it as she would experience it. I'm not going to tell her you're going to go into the sun. I'm going to tell her Jesus is going to enfold you in his love and you're going to be with him. Mm -hmm. And so when I had no more to say, I sat down. My brother looked across the room like, I don't know what you, you were doing, but, you know, she can't hear. And then 20 minutes later, she hemorrhaged. Uh -huh. It was something we could see happening. Uh -huh. And I forgot all about the voice. I forgot all about the light. I just ran around screaming, help us, help us, and trying to get help. And the place was empty because it was like five in the morning. And finally got this nurse and brought her over. And she like slapped my sister's hand and called her the wrong name and everything. And then finally, minutes later, I think comes a tiny little petite doctor, puts a stethoscope on her chest and says, she's 
her heart hasn't stopped beating yet, but it will when it runs out of oxygen, which to me was like, we're going to just sit here and let her die. And I could not accept that. And I wanted to grab the doctor and just strangle her. I could picture myself like grabbing her around the neck, like she's a little rag doll and just shaking her and saying, save my sister, you, you know, like, and then I felt my sister, she was hovering and boom, she fills me with the light. She fills me with love. And it's a love so powerful that anger can't be in the same body with it. Mm-hmm. So I understand that my sister loves that little doctor, loves the nurse that called her the wrong name, is loving my brother, is loving me, is just hovering and just beaming love and light into all of us. Mm-hmm. And the light filled me again to the point where I could almost feel like I was back, back in the sun, back in the light. It felt like this warmth, this joy, this tingling, this every all through me. And so my biggest problem became to hide that joy, to keep it off my face mm-hmm. because no one else knew what I was feeling. And then she gave me an uh, explicit instruction. She said, you need to go talk to my youngest because no one's going to talk to him. So I answered her in thought. I said, what do I say? I don't know what you mean. And she said, go to him. I will tell you. And so when we came in the house, first thing that happened was a big misunderstanding with my sister. Because when I said I was trying to, I I couldn't tell her what had happened. And she misinterpreted what I said as some kind of, I said I was brave. And she thought that I was being grandiose and was my sister who was brave. And what was I meaning? But I just meant that I did what the voice told me because I was still in the light. I was still carrying the light with me then. So the whole family is in the living room. They're all grieving. You can hear all this keening and crying, but I just did not even go there. I went to look for my nephew and I found him alone under the dining room table. And he just had, his Star Wars toys that he was playing with under there. And I knelt down under the table and I said, Damien, I have to talk to you. And my sister began telling me what to say to him. So I just told him, your mom loves you so much. And she wanted nothing more than to stay here and be your mama. But her body doesn't work anymore. And she had to go to heaven. She didn't want to go to heaven, but she had to go. And she will watch over you from there. And she will always love you. And I said, do you understand me? And this little guy, not even three years old, he nods his head, yes. And then I said, can I give you a hug? And he equally slowly shook his head, no. He was just absorbing what I had told him. Mm -hmm. So I saw this young man a few weeks ago. He came to visit. He is wonderfully talented. My sister was actually told at the time she had cancer that she should abort the pregnancy because her cancer was estrogen positive. Uh But she, for reasons I won't go into, was not going to do that. So she actually, in a sense, sacrificed her life for him, which I will never tell him. But I did tell him that about what I just told you, that she told me to go and to tell him that message. And the tears just spilled out his eyes. We were again at a family gathering with lots of hubbub, but it was him and me just connected like nobody else was there. And he said, it means so much to me that she would have singled me out for a direction. And so now I've formed a connection with him, even though he he lives in Minneapolis and I'm in Seattle. We're going to, I just sent him all those letters that she and I exchanged. I just annotated them for him, Mm -hmm. pulled a few pages because what sisters share isn't always what a son, I mean, wants to hear. Right. Um, And uh, we're going to Zoom and talk about them and I'm going to tell him more stories about his mother. 
um, and try to bring, because that whole side of the family is, there's there's been problems. Mm-hmm. But uh, the last time I tried to communicate with my sister, she said, please be an aunt, be an aunt to my kids. So I'm trying one by one to create connections with the three of them. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. That's something I hopefully you write it in your future book and, uh, <laughs> you know, about your sister because that's very touching and, and um, powerful too, as well as your near-death experience. And uh, uh-huh. tell us about, I know um, you do a blog and you do quite a few things because um, we're coming up to an hour and I, I, okay. I don't have much time here. So, but tell us about, you know, how people can know more about you, about your book, even though it's, well, the, you know, your the book is not done yet. The book is going to be called Die Hard Atheist. And I do have a, a full draft of it, but I just have to okay. find the time to edit it, rewrite it, be sure it's how I want it. And then I will publish it on Amazon. Um, so I expect to do that within six months to a year. Okay. That, that's um, okay. Meanwhile, most of my work is for alcoholics and for people affected by alcoholism. So Mm -hmm. my addiction memoir is the complete story of basically of my life. But, you know, in AA, when we are a speaker or something like that, we tell a version of our life, which is kind of the unfolding of our disease, the bottom it took us to, and then how we got well again. And so that's what that's what the book, A Spiritual Evolution, is about. And then I have a blog, A Spiritual Evolution, and I do, I, I call it alcoholism through the lens of a near-death experience because most, um, most of the blog posts are to do with alcoholism. I have a few in there about God and a few just about my understanding of, of the spiritual realm. And... Um, and I, you know, when I communicated with my dad uh, after after death, you know, I, I write about that in there too. But it's a weird audience because they, because they're alcoholics, but they're on board with the near death experience. My my uh, subscribers, and then I have just a YouTube video page that has, I mean, station, whatever you call it, YouTube thing. Um, but most of my stuff is that I climb mountains, and I'm I'm gonna be turning 62 but and I was supposed to have a hip replacement but everything that happens to me spontaneously heals so (laughs) my knee was no good and it spontaneously healed and I told about it in a video it's called uh, miracle on section k and then my hip I was just told uh, last winter that I had to have a hip replacement but then I had a past life regression and I was told by Ignacio that I need to ask the trees for help. And I have been doing that. And the the surgeon can't explain why my hip is better, but it's better. What about your cancer, your breast cancer? Oh, the cancer, yeah. I, I went through uh, uh, chemo radiation. I mm-hmm. didn't have to have chemotherapy. I just had a lumpectomy. Mm-hmm. And I kind of actually even regret going through the radiation, but I, I did. I lost the upper quadrant of my lung, which, which makes it, you know, because it burns your lung. So makes it difficult for me to breathe at elevation when you're um, above 10,000 feet. It's, it's hard for me, mm-hmm. but I've had a, a 100% recovery from the cancer as well. Well, your story is amazing. And uh, give us a website any, and you're on Facebook. That's how I found you. And uh, give us any other. I just have my Facebook page is just my regular old personal one. And to be honest, I only add people when I meet them or talk to them. So I can't add, like, I don't add people that I don't know. If you want me to add, then you just have to write to me. Yeah. You can still write to somebody if they still get it. But, you know, be friends, it's, it's a, you know, it's your personal yeah, yeah, no, thing. People can message me there. And if we get to be friends from messaging, then I'll friend you. But I'd like the people that I'm friends with on Facebook to actually be friends. Okay. And then um, uh, the, the blog is called A Spiritual Evolution. And so it's that.net. 
thespiritualevolution.net. That's the blog. And then my YouTube is just under my name, Louisa Peck. Okay. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on. We got to tighten it up here. And uh, it was really, really fun to have you. And I just want to thank you so very, very much for coming on the Phenomena. And and then when you get your book out, I want you to come on the Kathy Lee Parker show too. So I want you to talk about the alcoholism too on the Kathy Lee Parker show. So, you know, I'm going to invite you back. Give me some time, you know, schedule you in and let's bring you back and talk about your book and where to get it and all this other stuff and open it up. So I want to thank you so much, Louise Peck, for coming on and your story is beautiful. Thanks. And all your listeners, be well. Okay. Until then, thank you so much for tuning in to the Phenomena NDE.